we originally um, had planned to read quite a bit more, but um, we, we pared it down for us in our gathering. We hope that you did uh, get to read uh, beforehand. We are in Genesis 27, although I'll tell you that we will read parts of 26 and 28 as we go along. Um, this is uh, the third part in our long series on the book of Genesis. We've gone through the beginnings, the origins of life. We then went through the life of Abraham, and now we are in the life of Jacob. And we're not trying to skip 26, but I can tell you that if you read 26, it would all seem a little bit familiar. Uh, what you find in verse, uh, excuse me, in chapter 26 is um, Isaac repeats the folly of his father Abraham, <clears throat> pardon me, and he sends his wife into the harem of Abimelech, uh, just like his father did. He again feared for his life. He, uh, he said that, you know, this is my sister, and that kind of repeats itself. And then there's this battle for wells all over the promised land. And basically, here's what you find out. The bottom line of chapter 26 can really be found in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 26. And this is the bottom line of what you see God doing through the life of Isaac here. The, uh, it says this, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. I don't know what your, uh, your, your work year has been like, but I'm going to bet it's not been sowing and reaping a hundredfold. It ha if it has, um, then it was probably due to Bitcoin and you got out when it was high. Um, and that's what it comes down to. Like, I don't know anybody else that, that did that through that, but that's it. Uh, so the, the, he, he sowed and he reaped a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. In verse 13 it says, And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. That's kind of the bottom line of chapter 26. And what we also see is the echo of the great theologian, the notorious B.I.G., when he says, Mo money, mo, all y'all just went, notorious B.I.G. Mo money, mo problems, right? He became rich and gained more and more. And all of a sudden, these riches, the wealth that he accumulates, provides opportunity for the, the cracks in the foundation to be made known. And the, the, the cracks in the foundation to the marriage and to their parenting all of a sudden started out real small. But when there is wealth involved, when there is generational wealth involved, when there's an inheritance involved, man, the, the little bitty cracks in the sheetrock become massive underground. And all of a sudden you start to see everyone clinging and grasping and maneuvering and jockeying for that inheritance. See, if there's no big inheritance of, of, of possessions, I wonder if there's this battle for this blessing. But there is a great inheritance to be had. And there is a great battle that's being waged for the blessing of God. You see, the thing that is happening in, all, in the background of all of this is that they don't much care about God's blessing. They just care about the results. And everyone is doing their own thing to achieve whatever it is that only God can give. See, I don't know about you, but some of the most contentious conversations that you will have in your family, either from your parents to you or from you to your kids, are going to revolve around your last will and testament, are going to, 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 to center around what your parents 
um, have decided, and perhaps they haven't told you what they've decided, and, and, and perhaps they're just going to die and let you deal with the consequences after they go. If you don't think this is a real thing, um, I can assure you, having done many more funerals than I have done of weddings, that this is a real thing. That death, yes, brings people together, but my goodness, the circumstances around it can make us do that in our souls. Yes? I know that I have watched enough Dateline to know that this situation is ripe for betrayal and deceit and murder. And that's exactly what we get, don't we? Rebecca and Jacob are jockeying for this blessing that, number one, was promised to Jacob, and Jacob stole from his brother Esau. That's what we talked about last week. They're jockeying for it. Isaac, on the other hand, knows the oracle of God. You remember the oracle of God? Remember the prophecy of God that the, it's in Genesis 25. Let's read it. Genesis 25, it'll just say this, that when there was all this tumult in her womb, in verse 25, uh, 23 of chapter 25, and the Lord said to Rebekah, two nations, it's not just indigestion, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided one shall be stronger than the other, and then the heartbreaker comes. The older shall serve the younger. It was prophesied many years before this day. Forty years have gone by. Forty years have gone by. Now Isaac is old. He's a hundred years old. He's gone blind, and he wants to bless who he wants to bless. You can see that all this possession, there's, there's unbelievable stakes here. And so I would just ask, in the midst of all this, just like uh, Michael prayed, that we would look at this not critically, but truly as a mirror. Uh, Hebrews 12 says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And sometimes when I preach, especially on Abraham, particularly on now on Jacob, I'm a little bit harsher on Jacob. Uh, someone that's named Jacob told me, hey, could you be kind to Jacob? He's my namesake. I I'll try. I'll do my best. But I wonder if we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses um, in heaven looking down on us. I sometimes wonder when I'm preaching um, and when we're receiving, they can get a little critical on the fathers of the faith. Where they're looking down on heaven going, man, that was really critical, bro. I, I don't want to do that today. I do want to invite us to look at the scriptures as a mirror as a mirror to our souls, because I would just ask you, if there is a battle for blessing, and there is, 22 times in the, in the chapter 27 is the word blessing used. 22 times in one chapter. There is a battle here to receive something, to grasp something that they do not have. And so I would just ask, what would you do? What would you do? What will you do? What have you done in a situation where the stakes are high? If you are Isaac and you prefer Esau, the man's man, goes out with a bow and just kills things and brings it in and, and cooks things for you all the time. If you're Isaac and you prefer Esau, if you're Rebecca and you prefer Jacob who's in the tents and has smooth skin, if you were Esau and you regretted your decision to sell your birthright, if you were Jacob and you rightfully purchased that birthright, what would you do? You see, this is the kind of thing, this situation is the kind of thing that happens when we battle for a blessing that we cannot gain or earn. But we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we can jockey for it. 
But instead, what we will be reminded of throughout this passage is that God's salvation and his blessing is by grace. You cannot earn it, no matter how hard we try. So, let's look at the characters that we see battling for this blessing. We're just going to go through the four main characters and just kind of, again, look up, uh, lift up these characters as a mirror uh, to ask ourselves some hard questions along the way. So first, let's look at Isaac. And the way I've characterized Isaac is I think, for us, we can see that we are governed by preference. This is what will happen if we let preference govern who we love. Isaac, again, is 100 years old. If you look back at verse uh, 1 of chapter 27, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He is old, he is blind, he's 100 years old, the text will tell us. Um, he will go on to live until he's 180. So he thinks he is at the end of his life, and he's got to pass on his blessing to one of his sons, and the culture would dictate that it's his firstborn. But God has already determined that it will not be his firstborn. It will be the younger. Isaac doesn't much care about that. Instead, his preference is for Esau and for the good food that Esau has provided for him for a long period of time. And so he, gets, he lets his preference and his appetite get in the way of better leadership. So if you look at the text, you start to find that Isaac and his preferences start to divide the family. If you look here in verse two, uh, the second part of verse 1, he called Esau his older son, and he said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food. Not just any food. Don't make this second rate. Delicious food. You know the stuff I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And that sounds innocent. So you get to the next verse. Verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. The implication here is that Isaac is secretly pulling Esau aside and blessing him privately when it should have been a public proclamation of blessing over his son. Isaac is being very divisive and very sneaky. He knows what he's doing. He's pulling his son aside and he is being governed by his own preferences, his own desire to do ultimately what he thinks is right, but only because he has ignored what God has said long beforehand. Isaac's blindness metastasizes from his eyes and then into his heart as he tests every single sense, everyone except spiritual discernment. He brings Jacob closer. He thinks it's Esau, and he's like, this sounds like Jacob. His ears are being tested. But man, it, it feels like Esau, but now his touch is being tested. He says, well, why don't you, can you bring your food close to me? I want to eat some of that food. We'll see if you really are Isaac, because I know Jacob can't cook up something that, that Esau has cooked. No, but Rebecca can. Where did Esau learn how to cook all that food? Rebecca orchestrates this in the background, right? So now his, his, his taste is being tested, and then finally 
he brings Jacob closer and he says, kiss me, my son. It's a way for him to smell him. To, again, get that fourth sense kicked in. Uh, ultimately, to kind of figure out if he's being duped. And of course, he is. But Isaac loves the good food and wants to bless Esau privately. He still wanted to bless who he wanted to bless. And Isaac does uh, bless who he thinks is Esau, but it is actually Jacob. He thinks it's prefer- he, he excuse me, he thinks it's Esau, but he blesses Jacob. Again, I'll read for you verses 27 through 29. Look at this blessing that he gives his son Jacob, thinking it's Esau. So he came near, he kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments. And he blessed him and he said, see the smell of my son. Oh, the final evidence is here. It is the smell of hunting. It is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, the plenty of grain and wine, and let peoples serve you. This is the Abrahamic covenant now being passed on to Jacob just as God had said beforehand. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, uh-oh, and may your mother's sons bow down to you and curse be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. You see, that's the blessing that he gave to Jacob thinking it was Esau, and Esau comes in clinging for something. You give anything left for me. Of course, he doesn't, and he blesses him in verse 39, and he says this, Esau, uh, yeah, 39, right? Says this to Esau, behold, away from the fatness of the earth. Jacob gets the fatness of the earth, the goodness of the earth, the best parts of the earth, but away from that, O Esau, shall your dwelling place be, and away from God's provision of manna from heaven, of dew of heaven on high. No, no, it's not going to be anything else besides violence and strife and division By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother Jacob. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. We saw a little bit of that last week as we talked about the Edomites um, ultimately just celebrating the downfall of Israel. And so this comes true in history, but Isaac, that's who we're looking at, Isaac, Loves who he loves. He prefers who he prefers. And I think our culture, especially in today's world, like love is love, right? Love is love. Say la vie. Live and let live. It's, 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 there's t-shirts all over the place. Love is love. And yet love isn't love if God didn't say it's not love. It's something different. It may look the same, it may, it may smell the same, it may taste the same, but it is not the same. Instead, God has put some boundaries around what love truly is. Yes, yes, when God has spoken clearly about who and how to love, then we have to listen. Isaac denied this, right? He said, this is who you are to love and this is who you are to bless. It is the younger, not the older Man, I don't know about you, but I think our culture certainly screams this out to us, and, not, and I don't think the way that you have in your mind right now. 
I think we have someone else in our mind right now. I think we have them in our mind right now, but I think this has to do with us. Remember when Jesus said who we're to love in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? We went through the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he said who we are to love, who we're to devote ourselves to loving, to pursue their best interest in spite of what it may cost us. Remember them? Remember the label that Jesus gave them? It was this. In Matthew 5, he says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Adding on, he says in Matthew 5, 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So how much time, friends, do you spend with those you prefer? How much time do you spend with those whom you connect with? Rather than carving out, I'm saying that's a good thing, but don't let it be the ultimate thing. If you're a leader especially, there's a, there's, a, there's, um, there's a mantle of leadership. There's a cost of leadership that you know that there is a call then to love and spend time with those that maybe you don't necessarily prefer, but that need time with you. See, that's what he denied Jacob, isn't it? He, there's some time there that he needed to spend with Jacob, and so, but yet he preferred Esau and wanted to bless him with the double portion of the firstborn. So friends, how do your preferences govern what you choose to obey and who and how you are called to love others? How do your preferences govern this for you? That's the warning of, of Isaac as we go through the text, but he's not the only one with a warning. And so in no particular order, I'm just going to jump over to Esau. It all reminds me of Esau, right? Then Esau, if Isaac was the warning about living uh, your life governed by preference, Esau is the warning of living or wanting to live with the blessing of God without any sacrifice. It's, um, it's a marriage relationship with no commitment, with no covenant. And I don't know about you, but when I read Genesis 27, the only person that I see that could claim any sort of innocence in Genesis 27 is my man Esau. When I read, when I read Genesis 27, I most fundamentally um, sympathize with Esau, and I hope that you do. I think that you do, don't you? He got his hopes up that perhaps God will restore what was lost when he sold his birthright for a, a, a bowl of stew. And so he's kind of thinking like, you got to know that, that Isaac, for all of their life, saying, don't worry about it, man. I'm the one in charge here. I'll, I'll restore to you what was lost. And you got to also know that Jacob heard from, her, from his mom, no, no, don't, don't worry about that. I know what God said over time. I sympathize with Esau here that he is weeping, he is crying out for a blessing in verse 38, and I think we all feel that. We've all made bad decisions that we instantly regret. We've all made bad decisions where we instantly go, man, I wish I could take that back, and I hope that everyone else around me will not hold me accountable to that one decision, but instead see everything else about my life. I would imagine that Esau feels that pain, but... In our sympathizing and empathizing with Esau, let's not get too carried away. We've got to read what the New Testament says about our, our friend Esau. So Hebrews 12 says this about Esau, where we get a better picture, a clearer picture of what it is 
the character of Esau. Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. You should come up on your screen. I had this part of my notes last week. I don't think I read it. I don't remember, though. If I did, forgive me. If, um, also, it's good to repeat things. This is what it says in verse 15 of Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Now we're getting to the part that's important. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Oh, dang. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Bitter, undefiled, unholy, and sexually immoral is how the writer of Hebrews describes Esau. And I think to myself, how so? Like, okay, bitter, he probably became bitter over time, over the 40 years that the prophecy was made over him, that he'd sold his birthright. I bet there was some bitterness. And certainly as this, this, uh, this story unfolds, when he, try, when he wants to murder Jacob, defiled, that he, he, he despised his birthright. I get that. Unholy. I see all of that in here. Sexually immoral? What was that about? Well, it's in the parts that we skipped. So let's go back and read a little bit more in Genesis 26, 34, and 35 so we can get a better understanding of the sexual morality of Esau. Again, there are boundaries in which we must understand how to love and whom to love, and Esau steps out of those boundaries. It's no wonder that he's defiled, bitter, angry, and wanting something, but not really any sacrifice that goes along with it. Esau was 40 years old, and he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite. Hold on a second. The Hittite? Do we not remember all the links that Abraham went to so that Isaac's wife would not be a Hittite. That he sent a servant up to the north to his family 600 miles away to find Rebekah. It would have taken a long time for all this to happen. And now here we are, just one generation away. And now Esau is just disregarding all of the cost, all of their parents' story and going, no, no, I'll just take a Hittite. Oh, it's not just one Hittite to be his wife, and base math, I don't think that's how you pronounce it, but I'm going to go with base math, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Do you see all of a sudden what's going on in the family? As if that's not enough, our friend Isaac wanting all the blessing but no sacrifice. This, this story is bookended with Esau doing some pretty heinous things sexually, he marries people he is not supposed to marry. Then in verse 6 of chapter 28, go with me there. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. That would be Laban's house. That's where Rebekah came from. And that he blessed him as he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And he goes, wait a minute, I have two wives from the Canaanite women. Uh-oh. He's battling now for blessing. What, what, what do you have left over? And that Jacob had obeyed his father. Oh, that's the difference. 
and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, what did he do? Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of that person. Esau is going outside of the boundaries which God has blessed to gain a blessing. He wants all the results of the kingdom without the king. That's absolutely what's going on inside of Esau's heart. It's no wonder that he is described as bitter, defiled, unholy, immoral. And now he wants his dad to fix his mistakes. And you know who stands in the way of that kind of parenting? God. God steps in. And although everyone is jockeying for the position of this blessing, God has orchestrated a plan and will use even the deception of Jacob and Rebekah to fulfill what he said should happen. After undoubtedly hearing the story of how Rebekah and Jacob got married, he went and for, forebode all of that. He is a man desperate for blessing without the faith it requires to receive it. And so I wonder, friends, do we want the kingdom without the king? Do we want heaven without the God of heaven? Do we want the Savior without the Lord? Do we want all the benefit without any of the sacrifice? We want the Jesus that says, come and find rest, but we do not want the Jesus that said, if you're going to follow me and be my disciple, you've got to pick up your cross daily and follow me. Esau helps us see this preference in ourselves. And so I would just ask, if this is you, why do you want the blessing of God while denying God himself? Heaven is going to be a terrible place for you. Because you know what heaven's going to be like? All of eternity is going to be centered around worshiping the king that we don't want to obey. And you're not going to want that place because your whole life now is a great reflection of how much you'll enjoy the place that we all say we want to go. But will we live a life of obedience and sacrifice now so that we would enjoy the blessings forevermore? It's a great question that I think Esau prompts before us. And so, yes, we can sympathize with him. But man, let his life stand as a warning to not live a life just for the blessings of God, the peace that we can create on our, on our own without the Prince of Peace himself. But there are two more to unpack here. It's not just Isaac who shows us the warning of being governed. Oh, thank you, sir. Did I get a little excited? I was coming off the edge. That's what elders are for. Am I right? Just help me. When I'm going off the edge, brother, just push me right back gently. Just try, try to do it with less people around next time. It'd be great. If I could only not, not uh, mess up with less people. Anyways, back to what I was saying. Thank you, Kobe. I appreciate you, brother. Not just Isaac, who is governed by preference. Uh, not just Esau, who wants the blessing without the sacrifice. But now Jacob, 
who really shows us what it looks like to live with deception and blasphemy. Not just deception, but also blasphemy accompanying in this. And I don't know about you, but I read uh, 27. I think, man, Jacob is just a passive person in all of this. But no, he is not. He goes along with his mom's plan, right along with it, active and scheming, trying to figure out, not necessarily if this is the right or wrong thing to do, but whether or not what happens if he gets caught. I don't know if you live your life that way, students. When friends come over, or you go over there, or you get more freedom in your preteen years, and your teenage years, and your, 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 your family trusts you with more phone privileges and everything else, it's not a matter of whether or not uh, you get caught doing what you think you're about to not get caught in. We have filters for those things. But it is a matter of whether or not it is honoring and pleasing to Jesus who is seeing and watching when your parents aren't around. And all the parents said, and all the, all the students said, oh, man. <laughs> Sounds the same. It's got like the same words, amen and oh, man, but no. Yes, there is deceptive blasphemy going on here with Jacob, right? Rebecca heard the oracle of Genesis 25. You can guarantee she told her favorite son over and over and over again, you're the chosen one. Just as much as you can guarantee that Esau had heard from Isaac, doesn't matter that she says that Jacob is the chosen one. You're the firstborn, my man. You're my favorite. But friends, there is a fine line between what Rebecca has done, which was entitle a monster, and what we must all do, and that is instill self-confidence in our kids. Jacob steals his brother's blessing, and again, he is not concerned about doing what honors God, but on whether or not he's going to get caught. Look at verse 12. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. You see what he's concerned about? What happens if this goes wrong, Mom? And then again, this blasphemy comes in with verse 20. When, when, when Isaac asks Jacob, man, I just sent you out to go into the field and hunt. How is it that you've come back so quickly? In verse 20, Isaac said this, and how is it again that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Jacob, pretending to be Esau, because the Lord your God granted me success. He has now put his deception and baptized it into the name of God. He said, you can't question it now. I put God on it. You can't question anything now. God's name is associated with my success. And so if you question this, you're questioning God himself. And so it's ultimate deception when we put God's name on things. Jacob stands as a warning for us against all those who pursue their own interests in God's name. We do Jesus-like things with selfish motives. We serve we make sure that we are known for serving. We love, but we're going to post it on some Instagram and Facebook. Our left hand, though, is not supposed to know what our right hand is doing. Just as Jacob put on the skin and scent of another in order to gain his father's blessing, he also dressed up his selfish desires in God's name. And so the reflective question that I have for Jacob here. Are we putting God's name on our selfish desires? 
Did God grant you success at the end of all the trials and tribulations that you went through to get there? Or did you ignore a bunch of roadblocks to get what you wanted? I'm going to tell you right now, this one's a tough one to discern. You're going to need some friends to ask, to, 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 that you trust that you can ask questions like this to. Some true spiritual friends that you can just sit with and go, hey, I may have missed the Lord. I thought, I know when I told you this story, God said, but I may have missed it. Can you help me discern whether or not I missed it? I'm grateful to be amongst many of you that will sit in humility and go, did I miss this? Even when you get what you want, even when God's blessed you, you're still humble enough to ask the question. We need friends. We need good community, honest, genuine friends that will hold the mirror to us and don't go, no, no, there's nothing in your teeth. You're fine. Meanwhile, you got a big old hunch, hunk of salad in your teeth. We need the friend that will go, hey, bro, I know you're about to go on stage. I need, you got, you're, about to, you're about to fall off. There's a cost here. But you do it anyways and tell the truth. We need that amongst our communities and in our churches. That's the third one. See, Jacob was easy. We'll have more on Jacob as we go. Finally, Rebecca. Rebecca is the dominating figure in this entire scene. Not just dominating, but domineering. She is justified in her domineering ways. If you can put yourself in Rebecca's situation, in her place, Rebecca is not, again, not just the dominant figure, but the domineering one. Isaac gives, gives away his blessing, or wants to, outside of the oracle of God. And that prompts Rebecca to step in and orchestrate what she knows to be true. See, the, the narrative in Rebecca's heart is, God needs my help. You see, the people are getting in the way of what God said was going to happen, and God needs my help to fulfill this. And so the, the, the ends really justifies the means here, because I'm just helping him out. I'm just his helper. And so there's a self-justifying domination that's happening behind the scenes. It is all Rebecca in this passage. It's all Rebecca. She, though, takes the sins of others and justifies herself, herself to manipulate God's timing and his purposes. Friends, other people's failures, and we, if I asked right now, I've done it before, and I'm not going to do it again, but if I asked right now, how many of you have been disappointed by a leader in a church, most of our hands would go up. It is a bad reason to sin to then look at our leaders and go, well, I mean, if they can't live this life, we might as well not. If they can't do this, well, what's the point of me even trying? It, that's a bad motivator for life. And Rebecca, looking at her spiritual leader in Isaac, looks and says, well, he ain't doing what's right, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. And it doesn't matter how I do it, I'm going to do it. Because he's not answering. He's not leading. And I don't know if you're in a marriage where you start to have that narrative. Well, they're not going to do it. He's not going to do it, so I'll just go ahead and step in place. She's not going to do it, so I'll just go ahead and do it this way. It is a bad motivator to look at someone else's lacking and try and fill it instead of trusting that the Lord might be building that person up over time. Rebecca steps in, and she becomes domineering through all of this. You remember uh, Jacob's uh, uh, fear that there would be a curse? What does his mother say in verse 13? 
His mother said to Jacob, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Don't discern what God wants. You listen to me. She does not get a curse, but the cost is great for Rebekah. It's after this that Esau wants to murder his brother, right? That's the, that's the result of all this is that he starts to find out all this and he wants to murder Jacob. And so what ends up happening to, ha- happening, having to happen at the end of 27? Again, Rebekah goes to Isaac and says, hey, we've got to send him out of here. We've got to send him back to my brother where he will marry another, not around here, but up in Padan Aram, up where we came from. To our family, it is the last time that Rebecca will ever see her favorite son. She never sees him again. And I don't know if you're a mom, but could you imagine saying goodbye to your baby boy and never seeing him again, all because you got in the way of God's perfect and pleasing will? And not only that, not only that, did you, did you never see your favored son, but your unpreferred son starts to multiply the bitterness by bringing other women into the home. That it's not enough to have Hittites around, but now he's got Ishmael's kids in here. Oh, you can see a curse brewing just circumstantially for Rebecca. Rebecca's death is left out of this narrative. In Genesis 35, when everything shifts over to Joseph, Rebekah is not mentioned. You know who's mentioned in place of Rebekah, who's death and is buried with their forefathers? It's her, her nurse that came with her from her father's house. Rebekah's death is never mentioned. It's Moses' subtle way, the narrator, the, the, the author of Genesis, is Moses' subtle way to go, she doesn't even deserve to be mentioned here for what she did in this scene. You see, this is the fruit of someone who has to grasp control of life, living white-knuckled on the results of exactly what I want it to be or exactly as I think I heard God say it. In this time and in this way, and there's a white-knuckling to this that I think we can all go, oh man, I was cool with you talking about Rebecca, but I'm not cool with you talking about it now. That a white-knuckled life can manage life, but they will only thrive when they let go of the control into a God who loves them far than they can ever imagine and may disappoint them along the way. And that's okay. That there is a better will to be had than our own for those of us that need control. Because the road to getting what is promised is far too easily compromised when we manipulate others around us. And Rebecca, see the thing about Rebecca is that she values all the right things in the story. She values the blessing. She values the promises of God. But where she goes wrong is that she becomes self-righteous in thinking God needs my help. So I would ask as we close, are you justified in taking control in your life? Others let you down? People in in control, people in authority, 
Those people let you down over time, and so your reaction subconsciously or consciously has been to just white-knuckle life and gain control back. You might be justified in that response, but that is no way to thrive in the kingdom because guess what? Only one person has control, and everything else is a mirage. So I will ask you a few more questions here. What are we to learn in all of this? Well, it's important to, again, remember this is a battle for the blessing of the firstborn. A battle for the blessing of the firstborn. It was to the firstborn that the double portion was given. Esau squandered it. Jacob stole it. Rebekah orchestrated all of this. And Isaac wished that he could give it to somebody else. And yet, through Jesus... This, this blessing of the firstborn. If we read in Hebrews 12, and we kept reading in Hebrews 12, it says this, that we are the assembly of the firstborn. What does that mean in regards to the blessing of the firstborn? It means this. If we are in Christ, God has blessed you as a firstborn. Because he, his firstborn, took on our flesh. Just as Jacob took on the flesh of Esau, so did Jesus then take on our flesh. Not to deceive us, but to reveal the beautiful will of our God. He died for unworthy people like Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah and Amy and John and Kobe and Lance and Jennifer and Andrew and everyone else. He took on the curse like Rebecca promised to take on the curse so that he and that he would give us the blessing of our father. He, he sent away his favorite son, just like Rebecca had to send away Jacob so that we could become and be brought near as his sons and daughters. If only we would repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom. If only we would try and quit trying to battle for the blessing of the firstborn and instead receive it by faith. Receiving it in full faith of the one who blesses. Not the blessing, but the one who has chosen to bless us. Here's the good news in this. Jacob and Esau, Rebekah, all thought that blessing was going to run out. As greatly as possessed of possessions that Isaac had, they all thought it was limited, and so they got a battle for it. The vats of God's grace are endless for you. The blessing that he has stored up for you is bottomless. As high are the heavens, as, as far as east is to the west, that's how much God loves you in his son Jesus. We'll receive it. That's the question. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are grateful that you promise these things to us. And we're also grateful that you are patient. You're patient for, uh, of us when we go left or right or cling and grasp and white-knuckle blessings as if somehow we're going to lose them. 
where we don't find ourselves trying to be in control. Maybe we just try and find ourselves doing all the right things for all the right reasons and all the right ways so that we can get what we want. And once we get what we want, man, our prayer life goes silent, doesn't it? Oh, Lord, forgive us for such fickle faith. Lead us into the truth about your son Jesus that loves us, was forsaken for us, brought us near, redefines our family dynamics, and no matter what we came from or what we're raising now or what we're in and being raised by our parents, if we believe we can be blessed like a firstborn, double portion of God's goodness, looking forward not just to a kingdom, but to the king who reigns and rules over all things. May we be a people who trusts and follows. In Christ's name do I pray. Amen.